Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. People live in a world of their own making. Frankly, that seems to be the problem. Welcome to Angry Planet. Hello and welcome to Angry Planet. My name, as always, is Jason Field. Matthew Galt, unfortunately, is under the weather. Israel is approaching its 75th anniversary which is actually somewhat unlikely considering its origin in the Holocaust and the war that followed in its foundation. And the governments that have followed have ranged from socialist to, well, what exactly is the current government? It's just recently elected and has its fourth or fifth in uh, five years, Dan? Uh, it depends if you count temporary governments, but it's, it's the result of the fifth election in three years. Joining me to help understand all of this is Dan Perry, who is a former bureau chief uh, for the Associated Press in Israel and Palestine, and also a director of Covering the Middle East and former chairman of the Foreign Press Association in Jerusalem. So he's a man who knows what he's talking about. Um. Can we start with a real basic, because now it's Benjamin Netanyahu who's, who's back in control of the Israeli government, or at least as much as anybody is. Who is Benjamin Netanyahu, and where did he come from? He's a fascinating figure. He he is, um, in cumulative terms, over several different periods, he's the longest-serving prime minister in Israel's history, those 75 years of history that you mentioned. Uh by whisker. He just uh, bested David Ben-Gurion. Uh, he is a sort of a scion of a, of a respected family in a revisionist movement. They were the opponents of the original socialists who set up Israel. So they were more right-wing and more capitalistic, slightly more nationalistic, but not at all religious. That was a revisionist movement. And his dad was a historian who was a part of that. Uh, and, and that became the original version of Likud. Now, Likud uh, Menachem Begin's Likud in, in recent decades has gone through a transformation, um, unique in its own way to Israel's circumstances, but in another way, not unlike what happened to the Republican Party in the U.S. It obviously is close to unrecognizable from the days of, you know, Gerald Ford. And, and something similar has happened to Likud, where they have morphed into a party that is at the head of an alliance uh, that can be seen as uh, quite quite extremely nationalistic and rather religious, which takes us in all kinds of other directions that are sometimes difficult to explain to a foreign audience, but uh, there, but because of things going on in Israeli society and the birth rate among the ultra-Orthodox, hyper-religious people, Israel may become eventually a version of Iran, very far from both the original socialist vision and 
and also rather far from the original revisionist vision, which is where Netanyahu comes from. I would also add that he is easily, easily one of the most um, articulate, eloquent, Machiavellian, intelligent, erudite, and educated leaders on the face of the planet. And you mentioned a bit of my AP history before, but I was also the, the head of AP in Europe and Africa and the Middle East. And I mean, I've seen a lot of the world and I've never seen anything like Netanyahu. He is a political machine that, uh, that is so rare. Um, in terms of intensity and quality and determination that the, about the only parallel I can think of is maybe Bill Clinton. Um, but Clinton was, was, was constrained by a two term limit. <laughs> but Tanya was not. And I remember when he was ambassador to the UN, if, uh, if I remember right, and not the US, I think he was ambassador to the UN. Um, one thing that struck me was he was also quite handsome. <laughs> which is a little well, bit un- a little bit unusual from what I've seen of Israeli leaders. It's just interesting because he has a telegenic quality to no, him he's, as he's, well. he's telegenic for sure. I mean, I won't quibble about the handsomeness, and of course, now he's in his mid seventies. Uh, but um, yeah, he was an impressive figure. He has a nice baritone, and and as I say, what 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 tended to overpower the listener was his intellect. Uh, unfortunately, that is married up to. Um, other qualities which are less positive and which have been, which have come into full bloom in his latter years. I mean, his cynicism, uh, his, uh, economy with the truth, um, his ability to get himself mixed up in cartoonish corruption scandals, uh, in the past decade, uh, is almost as unequaled as are his, uh, you know, positive qualities. <laughs> and, and look, and today, and today he's for he's a he's under uh, uh, he he's facing trial ongoing for bribery, fraud, and breach of trust. Uh, there's at least a fourth case that somehow he has escaped indictment on, which is in some ways more spectacular, involving corruption that has sent others already to jail uh, in the context of the purchase of nuclear submarines, um, and. So he's really like ensnared in in some legal difficulties, uh, which have placed him at the mercy of his extreme right allies and his religious allies. And, and this has changed everything about Israeli politics in, in a way that I think is important to explain. In the past, for about, for about 45 years, Israel has had something close to effectively a two-party system. There's a multiplicity of parties, but it amounted to two camps. He had the center left, moderate, uh, inclined to make compromises, wanting to end the occupation in West Bank and before that Gaza, in alliance with the Arabs. So the center left Arabs, that was like the Democrats. And he had the Republicans, or the equivalent. And that was Likud and the extreme right, the fanatical extremist people who want to burn down a house. And uh, the religious parties in their various stripe. Some of them were mainstream religious. Others were ultra-Orthodox, what Americans call Hasidim, somewhat inaccurately, what in Israel is called Haredim. Um, but they're quite distinct in their appearance and behavior uh, and politics. Um, so that was the two blocks. Now, whenever the right wing won, the, the Likud uh, religious extremist block won, the Likud leader 
could sort of control the the demands coming from the French parties in his bloc by saying, look, I'll do an alliance with the center-left parties. And historically, they've proven uh, acquiescent because so desperate were they to minimize the effect of the lunatics that they, and by the way, and so so grasping were they for a share of power that they tended to agree. So Israel's had uh, more than its share of so-called unity governments. In fact, in fact I think it might have even invented the term uh, which was then perfected by Angela Merkel in Germany, where she also had centrist governments for a similar reason, to avoid having to do a coalition with the uh, with the uh, far right alliance for Deutschland. Uh, so the you know the the social democrats agreed to go with the Christian democrats. That tended to happen in Israel. Today, Netanyahu, because of the corruption scandals and some other things, including his overall behavior uh, over the past uh, two decades, which is seen as uh, cynically inciting the different types of Israelis against each other. He's become a symbol of something negative for the other side, a little bit like Trump in the U.S. Um, he's now being boycotted. And the center-left leadership has more or less um, placed uh, its entire personal and political credibility on the boycott of Netanyahu. And, and the press smelled blood here, so they asked him like a thousand times, would you ever ever do a coalition with him? Is there any such scenario? Is it even remotely conceivable? And you can always go back on election promises, but 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 they ha- they went so far in in assuring the public they never would that the boycott is serious. It prevents, therefore, Netanyahu from doing a centrist coalition, and that places him totally at the mercy of religious and extremist parties, and the result is what we see before us, the first ever government in Israel that is genuinely uh, describable as extreme right and truly dangerous to, uh, to, to the region, to the country, certainly to the opposition, uh, and also in a way to itself. You already see them ripping each other to, to shreds on a variety of seemingly trivial issues, but they're doing it already in the first week. You bring up a very interesting point, the unity governments. Actually, in order to avoid the worst case scenario, do you really think that uh, okay, I guess it's two questions. One, will the left just be so stubborn that they leave themselves in this marginalized or extremely marginalized situation? Or would even Netanyahu at this point be interested in creating a unity government instead of the allies that he has now? Um, Netanyahu was secular, and Netanyahu was intelligent, uh, and Netanyahu is a Zionist. And he currently finds himself at the head of a government that is, uh, in the view of many Israelis, none of those things, including not Zionist. Because by insisting on, on, on melding the West Bank in a way that is irreversible via uncontrolled settlement uh, to Israel, that creates a binational state. That will either not be a Jewish state or will not be democratic because a third of the population, the Palestinians, of what is effectively the country, won't be able to vote. That's not the Zionist vision. Um Netanyahu uh, may have other ideas about what Israel needs to consider as its primary goals. For example, uh, he wants, he historically has wanted to find ways to hold on to the West Bank for security purposes. It is strategic territory. So the issue is complicated. But at the end of the day, I have little doubt that he would prefer a centrist coalition that would enable him to, you know, play all sides against each other and, 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 and carry out what is this genuinely conservative instinct of doing nothing too radical. Neither too much to settle the West Bank, nor take any gambles on 
you know, risky peace deals that involve giving up the strategic highland that is the West Bank, doing nothing. That's his inclination. And that can't happen with the extreme right wing as his ally. Um, and I also have to think, because he can do the math, he knows that his alliance with the Haredim and, um, and the dynamic that has created in terms of subsidizing uh, their phenomenally high birth rate and allowing them to not teach their kids math and science and English, thereby make, making them unemployable, where they're already a fifth of the Jews in this country. Uh, this is heading Israel, leading Israel towards a place that is economically unsustainable. And everything that you know of, and socially, uh, a device to a degree that is itself unsustainable, this is uh, you know bringing about the end uh, of the miracle that is Israel's economy and Israel's uh, high-tech prowess and so forth. So I think he knows all this and he would prefer a centrist government. Um, how to bring that about is is where I believe his Machiavellian instinct comes in. I think Netanyahu is eager to have his allies right now create uh, the impression that they're perfectly willing to burn down the house in order to freak out the left which probably is what's necessary to get them to abandon their promises to not join. Uh, and there's another little thing in the background. Uh, the Tanyas coalition um, openly states that it wants to do various reforms uh, to the legal system and pretty much to the governing uh, edifice of Israel that will take it uh, in take it a long way towards the sort of fake democracies that we see in Turkey and Hungary and Poland that we used to see in Russia before it became a full non-democracy. Uh, that was not the original vision of Israel. That was not where people thought it was headed 20 years ago and it wouldn't seem to be part of uh, the, the West in every way. Um, for Netanyahu, this is actually rather important because if he's convicted uh, of the crimes of which he's accused, it's very difficult to see how he avoids jail time. He has to dismantle the legal system and discredit it. And for the last three years, he is engaged in a degree of agitation against the legal system in Israel uh, across the board, the police, the prosecution, the attorney general, the judges, the Supreme Court. He claims all of them are part of a deep state plot against him, including key officials who put him on trial who are ideologically right-wingers whom he appointed. Uh, the agitation Netanyahu has carried out against uh, the, the legal system in Israel and, in effect, Israel's democracy was so extreme as to make Trumpism look polite. Uh, and he sort of needs to see that through. Specifically, he needs his existing coalition to make good on promises, threats, plans to enact a so-called override clause, which would enable the parliament by a simple majority to overturn decisions of the Supreme Court. For example, the conviction of a prime minister. Or, for example, the allowing of a sitting prime minister to be put on trial. Or, for example, the very existence of the breach of trust uh, uh, crime in Israel, which they want to have canceled. That's one of the three he's accused of. <laughs> and so there's no way, no way uh, the opposition would ever go along with that. Uh, and yet he has to see that through. So a reasonable bet would be that they do some of this damage for the next year or two. And with the flames reaching the attic by that point, and probably uh, an intifada raging, and the Palestinian Authority having collapsed, at that point, it will feel like such a national emergency that um, the left will 
you know, maybe change its position and be compelled under the the, the pressures of a national emergency and with this other anti-democratic stuff already done uh, to, to join him then. That's a possible scenario. It's fascinating to think about how in the United States we're having a legitimacy crisis in the government because of our Supreme Court um, and of feeling on the left that it is so far to the right that there the decisions that are coming from it are illegitimate. And in Israel, you have the concept of actually overriding the Supreme Court, which I don't know how that would even happen here in the United States. Um, oh, 51 senators. The is version that all of the it would take? Mm-hmm. The version of the override clause that they want to enact would enable any majority to uh, decide. Now, Israel has no constitution. So uh, it's interesting because you could argue what is democracy, and I think most people would tell you democracy is a majority rule. Uh, very few people on the street, even in America, would go very far in insisting on other niceties like minority rights. So under this version of majority rule, 51 senators, or in Israel's case, 61 Knesset members, could decide, let's say, to cancel democracy. And the fanatical devotees of uh, majoritarianism would then tell you that that's okay because the majority decided. Um, it's, it's interesting to look at the differences between the U.S. system and the Israeli system. In America, the Supreme Court is completely politicized. Uh, it, it is sort of amusing to see the Americans running around the planet telling other people how not to politicize their judiciary. <laughs> Uh, Israel has many things about it that are imperfect, but one of the things they kind of got right is that the judiciary was independent and the judiciary did stand up for minority rights. And for example, despite the failure of democracy that has brought about 55 years of occupation of the West Bank and oppression of the Palestinians, to the extent that the Supreme Court could, they were the last uh, recourse for Palestinian rights, even non-citizens. Uh, the Supreme Court has protected the Palestinians to, within reason, not fully, but they have stood and still stand for uh, something liberal about Israel, for something progressive and decent about Israel. Uh, I'm afraid the American Supreme Court has gone in a very different direction as a result of politics. So Israel's court is not yet right wing. Um, when it becomes that way, and this is one of the projects of the Israeli right wing, which as I say, is quite analogous to the Trumpist project. They're just a few years behind. They want, in addition to the override clause, to politicize the uh, choosing of judges and to use that different type of process to bring about a right-wing Supreme Court, at which point it will become less necessary to override their decisions. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. 
Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. <laughs> I'm afraid that there's so many threads that there's no way that we can talk about everything in time. Yeah. Uh one of the extremists um, who's becoming famous, even in the United States, is Itamar Ben-Gavir. And I least wanted to touch on him, who he is, what he wants, um, before we get <laughs> before this conversation ends. He just seems like, uh, I don't know if he's actually important, but I know he's controversial as hell. So can you tell us a little bit about him and whether he is important? Yeah, I mean, he comes from, a, I believe, a working class family. Um, he uh, became religious uh, in his late teens or early 20s, I think late teens. Uh, and ever since ever since those late teens, he's been well-known in Israel because he was part of the hysterical agitation against the Oslo Accords and Yitzhak Rabin's mid-1990s efforts to partition the country, basically. That is where the autonomy government comes from of the Palestinians. The early steps that didn't bring peace, but did bring about a version of Palestinian self-rule, he was opposed to that as a kid. Uh, he first came to public prominence in Israel when TV filmed him showing he had stolen the insignia off Rabin's car and saying, we got to his car, we can get to him. And and uh, the, the riots were really violent. And of course, one of his buddies did get to him uh, and killed him on November 4th. 1995, and that was the beginning of the end, really, of, of the genuine peace process in Israel. Now, Ben Gvir uh, is an acolyte of the late Rabbi uh, Meir Kahana, who favored um, expulsion of Arabs from the land of Israel. Uh, he is also an acoly acolyte of uh, Dr. Baruch Goldstein, uh, known to history as the uh, Jewish terrorist who killed 30-some Palestinians uh, in the Tomb of the Patriarchs in 1994 in Hebron, uh, he had a picture of Goldstein on his wall. Okay. And this is a mass murder. So extremist was Ben Gvir that as, as late as two years ago, Netanyahu, when he was trying to somehow appeal to the left a little bit in one of the previous elections, made a promise on TV that Ben Gvir, ben -Gvir would never be a minister in his government, no matter what, even if he got into the Knesset. Over the years, Ben Gvir has faced Dozens of charges, according to Wikipedia, over 50. He has been slapped with quite a few convictions, including for support for terror. Uh, and that this person uh, is currently in charge of an expanded national security ministry is so preposterous that I, I think if you have to point to one thing as symbolic of what has happened in Israel, it is that. But, you know, there's more. I mean... <laughs> the finance minister, who's also the health minister, and this sits on a, a lot of money here. I'm sorry, the interior minister, who's who's also uh, the, the the health minister, which sits on a lot of money, a lot of control, is Arya Derry, who served a prison sentence for bribery 20 years ago. He's the head of a Sephardic ultra-Orthodox party, Shas. And he was convicted again in a plea bargain two years ago of tax evasion, where he wasn't sent to jail because of a promise promise that he would leave politics and now he's one of the most powerful ministers in the israeli government 
And they had to pass a law to enable a person who is thusly convicted to be a minister, and he passed that law. And that law has now been taken to the Supreme Court, which in coming days is going to have to vote on this issue. And the Attorney General, inherited from the previous government, has just said she cannot defend this appointment for the Supreme Court. I'd be interested to see if she could defend the Itamar Ben-Gvir appointment or the appointment of uh, another religious extremist, uh but Salel Smotrich, who's a finance minister, this is a guy who calls himself in front of the media a proud homophobe, who in front of the media lamented that his wife had to give birth um, in a maternity ward where there were Arabs, um, and who whose vision for the finance ministry of a top country in the OECD with a per capita income higher than France's and Italy's at this point, uh, is to abandon notions of capitalism versus socialism and run the economy by the principles of the Torah. So you look at this whole thing, not just Ben Gvir, and it is a five alarm fire. I mean, I have never seen a country that is democratic, uh, facing this level of a schism, uh, and, 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 and a situation that logically, logically, leads to a to a civil war not against the arabs <laughs> internally among the jews putting aside the fact that i absolutely would not be surprised by a civil war in the form of an intifada not exactly civil because the palestinians aren't citizens uh with the palestinians caused caused by this government which is about to deepen the settlement deep in the west bank so I, I I don't even know what to say because you when you analyze the situation here objectively, it kind of sounds like you're an alarmist. <laughs> uh, it is Americans who remember what the atmosphere was like in January 2017 after the election of Trump get a sense of this, a taste of this. But 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 even the most radical anti-Trumpist probably knew in their heart of hearts that he didn't have. The Trumpist movement didn't have within it the power or the context to destroy America as we know it. I mean, and I have to admit to some surprise that he took it as far as he did with his uh, stolen election scenario on January 6th. I mean, uh, you know, I didn't, I, I, I'm not that surprised, but didn't expect it to go quite so far. And even that was survivable, clearly survivable. Um, where the current dynamic is taking Israel is not surviving. I doubt it would reach its 100th birthday. Now, things can change. Uh, and I think after Netanyahu leaves, we will see, and maybe, and maybe before, we will see the Likud, um, and the Israeli center, uh, come together in, in, in a last minute rush to save the country. Uh, I, I suspect that to be so. Because even though I called it initially a two-party system effectively, Likud is not yet insane. They're just confused. And a few years of, as I say, the flames engulfing the house might clarify their mind. And they may understand, the voters may understand who they've allied with. And pretty much at a minute to midnight, I could see scenarios that salvage the situation somehow. Israel's military is one of the most important, if not the most important uh, element of the society in a way. Uh, what I mean by that is everyone serves. 
except, of course, right? except for the religious um, and the Arabs. exemptions yeah. and the Arabs. Um, not the Palestinians. 20% of Israeli citizens are Arabs are and Israel Arabs. proper, not the West Bank. They do. Most of them do not serve. Some Bedouins serve and, and the Druze serve, but 90% of the Arabs don't serve. And the Haredim don't serve. And a lot of others find ways to weasel out of it. So about half the people serve. Okay, so even with that being the case, I've never heard anyone mention uh, an independent military that might step in, which is interesting. I only mention this because in the United States, even, there was concern that the military would align itself one way or the other with either the Republicans or the Democrats. Mark Milley, our uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, has said a lot of very uh, vague things about whether he would have obeyed orders from Trump. But yeah. um, And in uh, Turkey, uh, another example that really pops into my mind, there had been various elected governments that the military had stepped in and quashed until we got to Erdogan. Is there such a thing as an independent entity that could step in in Israeli society? Uh, <laughs> I mentioned before scenarios. I mean, I could see many scenarios. I think the most benign scenario was the Likud and the center-left joining up and destroying the two-block system. Uh, you're talking now to a person who 35 years ago, as a political reporter of the Jerusalem Post and the previous incarnation of mine in Israel, wrote an op-ed speculating about a military coup because the military was the elite of society back then certainly the leadership of it and the elite of society then as now is firmly behind the center left uh not all of them there are exceptions but essentially 90 percent of the educated people of the journalists of uh of uh the business people of the diplomats and of the heads of the security branches understand that the right is leading to oblivion uh and and they've been very reluctant to do much about it uh things have changed since then because the the army has become to such a horrifying degree um an occupation uh imposition militia in the west bank that this has driven away good people and it's turned the military more and more into a more balanced organization where much of the leadership is right wing uh, but even now, with a few exceptions, including, uh, one of the recent Shin Bet heads and one of the recent major generals, both of whom were in Netanyahu's government and who are two of the most plausible people in Bibi's government, it remains the case that almost all former heads of the police, the Shin Bet, which is like the FBI, the Mossad, which is like the CIA, and the military are clearly left wing. Uh, there was a movie in 2012 called The Gatekeepers, and that included the then interviews with the then uh, six living former heads of the Shin Bet, the organization in charge of imposing the occupation in a way of the West Bank and Gaza. All of them, all of them articulated a position that said the occupation, which we worked to perpetuate because we had to, is a catastrophe for Israel in terms of long-term strategy. They were all center-left. Um Will salvation come from that? I do not think so. I can't see the military stepping in because too many of the soldiers are right wing. Um, and I'm not sure I can see another, you know, another entity that, that could do such a thing. And, and in any case, arguing for a military coup 
is is never a way to appear reasonable on podcasts. Uh, <laughs> I, Fair enough. I, I recently uh, wrote a piece in the Times of Israel that that became that, that generated a lot of discussion about how maybe the only way to sort of get out of this mess is to partition the country further. The two-state solution, but not Israel and Palestine, maybe also that, but two different Israels, Israel and Judea. And the idea was this, you can have, you can have a pretty clean territorial division because if you simply took the Tel Aviv area and carved out 10 kilometer wide, a 10 kilometer wide strip all the way to Haifa area, that's about half the population of the country. And 90% of it would be center left, secular. There would be relatively few Arabs, but those that would live there would be embraced and equal. And it would be kind of a sort of version of, if not heaven on earth, at least Herzl's Altnoyland, this utopian novel about what he thought the Jewish state would look like. That would be this. And the rest of Israel would be everyone else. And, and they would have a lot of Arabs and they could take all the settlements and see and fight it out among themselves. And, you know, without any of the recent senior people in any of the security uh, branches of Israel to protect them, let's see how far they get. <laughs> that, that was the idea. And, you know, I mean, of course, I was widely ridiculed and many people thought it was um, not serious and, you know, some version of a Jonathan Swift proposal, <laughs> modest proposal. Uh, and look, it's not really going to happen. But but then again, there is no reasonable scenario that is going to happen. Something unreasonable is going to happen, including, you know, peace in our time. If the benign scenario comes out, that's also not so reasonable. Um, right now, I think if I were to sort of think philosophically about what 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 needs to be foremost in people's minds. There are no good options and people need to focus uh, each in accordance with their own principles, thoughts, knowledge, intelligence, decency on what is from their perspective, the least bad option. And we are not wired as people to, to embrace the least bad option, right? Cause our, our brains say, well, it's bad, but it's the least bad. Israel doesn't have a good option. <laughs> I would just mention the whole concept of Israel and Judah uh, goes back uh, about, what is it, 4,000 years? There, <laughs> and it didn't work out so well the yes. first time. There were <laughs> and even then, Judea was a less liberal, or whatever accounted for liberalness uh, in, uh, in, uh, in those days. Yeah, sure. Uh, and, well, if you go that far back, you also have to conclude that the notion of Jewish sovereignty in, in, in the Holy Land has a very poor track record. There were several efforts, and none of them lasted over a century. And I myself predicted, if the right wing is allowed to remain in power and do what it's going to do and actually do it, Israel will not reach year 100, same as the previous two efforts. Not in this current incarnation. I think that we like to end this show, by the way, on a down note when we can. <laughs> Dan Perry, thank you so much for joining us and helping us to understand at least a little of what sounds like the most complicated situation <laughs> there is out there. It's up there, man. <laughs>
Thanks for listening to another episode of Angry Plants. The show is produced with love by Matthew Galt and Jason Fields, with the assistance of Kevin O'Dell. This is the place where we ask you for money. If you subscribe to us on substack.angryplanet.com, it means the world to us. The show, which we've been doing for more than seven years now, means the world to us, and we hope it means a lot to you. We're incredibly grateful to our subscribers. Please feel free to ask us questions, suggest show ideas, or just say hi. $9 a month may sound like a big ask, but it helps us to do the show on top of everything else that we do. We'd love to make Angry Planet a full-time gig and bring you a lot more content. If we get enough subscriptions, that's exactly what we'll do. But even if you don't subscribe, we're grateful that you listen. Many of you have been listening since the beginning, and seriously, that makes it worth doing the show. Thank you for listening, and look for another episode next week. Stay safe. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs>